great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight, we'll be discussing lawmakers passing an amendment to decriminalize a presidential state affairs fund's use, the Transitional Justice Commission disbanding after four years, the KMT's Eric Ju heading to the United States, Su Jia Chun being appointed to the post of chairman of the Taiwan-Japan Relations Association, and cheers going up in Taiwan as Top Gun Maverick reinstated the ROC flag on a rather famous bomber jacket. But we'll begin with a bit of a different outlook at the coronavirus situation here in Taiwan as the Financial Supervisory Commission this week ordered the island's insurance companies to honour valid coronavirus-related policies. The call came amid reports that insurers are facing more than $1 billion US dollars in claims due to the current domestic coronavirus outbreak. And the FSC was reportedly forced to order insurers to pay out on valid policies after they faced criticism from lawmakers for dismissing claims, cancelling policies and delaying payments. Now, the FSC says there are currently more than 6 million still active coronavirus-related policies and another million waiting for approval. And as of Monday of this week, insurers had paid out 4.04 billion NT on some 115,000 claims. Now, according to the FSC, that figure amounts to 164.83% of local insurance companies' earnings on infectious disease policies. Now, the companies had earned 2.451 billion NT in premiums on a total of 2.97 million NT of those policies. And Bloomberg reported this week that insurers so far this year have already paid out 2.6 billion NT to customers, and that's more than the 2.1 billion NT in revenue they've received from the premiums. Now, while figures show that over the past week alone, insurance companies had paid out an average of 200 million NT per day. Of the coronavirus policies being offered, quarantine insurance is one of the most popular and customers can pay as little as 666 NT per year for a payout of 50,000 NT if they are required to isolate. If they later test positive for the coronavirus, they can get another 50,000 NT. So, Ross, the FSC basically ordering insurance companies, you, you took their money, please pay your customers. Not not a surprise. I mean, public uh, expectations or, or policyholder expectations are that the policies will be honored. And uh, the legislators, of course, are going to take the side of the public on this or the voters. That's a no brainer. And the FSC will follow along. Anyone who's ever had to try and get a payout on an insurance policy, any kind of insurance, whether it's health insurance, uh, quarantine insurance in this case, uh, infectious disease insurance, car insurance, et cetera. Uh, travel insurance would be another popular one here in Taiwan as well. Uh, everyone knows how difficult it is. I mean, that that's what the insurance company is supposed to do. They're supposed to challenge you. They're supposed to ask for proof that you were in quarantine. And that, that's been one of the issues in, in this uh, chain of events as well. Uh, people didn't always have easy access to sufficient proof. But that's, like I said, that that's what an insurance company does, right? They ask you to prove your damages. They ask you to prove what, what you say really happened. They're not just going to send you a check, Gavin, because you call them up and say, I have COVID or I was in quarantine. But but it's it's a fair question uh, to, to ask whether or not the insurance companies are, are being unnecessarily difficult. And uh, that's where the public will start to cry foul. 
media legislators will get involved and, and the regulator will have to step in and, and say something. We shouldn't have too much sympathy for the insurance companies. They, they usually make a lot of money and uh, they'll probably go back to making a lot of money after they pay out on these policies. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think what surprises me is that perhaps the insurers were not expecting Taiwan to eventually transition away from COVID zero. And so Spence, it seems like perhaps there's this uh, inability to plan ahead and realize that, well, Taiwan is not always going to be COVID zero, and that's the reason for these large payouts, or the, the large amount of payouts, rather, and then the, the unwillingness of some insurers to pay out. I think what's interesting is that, critically, this adds to demand for uh, proof of testing. And so, for example, there are people climbing for PCR tests because they want or need proof to get their insurance policies. Uh, there's also people that somehow, strangely, want COVID now because they, uh, in, in occasional cases, because this will allow for an insurance payout. Uh, but then it's not surprising that the politician will take the side of the public at large, criticism of the insurance groups and so forth. Um, I think it's quite interesting that regarding the transition away from COVID zero, politicians spoke of this early on uh, of the eventual need to coexist with COVID zero, but perhaps they were not too serious about it. They were using this to attack political enemies. But then I'm a little surprised in that the insurance industry didn't plan ahead for this because there was no way to maintain COVID zero indefinitely. Eventually it would spread among the public. And so now we're seeing these payouts. And Ross, what Brian mentioned there, people may be wanting to get COVID after taking out a policy to basically, I wouldn't say scam, but to sort of get money out of the insurance company because they've paid a premium. I, I think anyone who would do that is is seriously mentally ill. And uh, that's just despicable because ultimately, if they are sick, they're probably also utilizing medical resources as well whether that's pharmaceuticals or uh, doctor visits, which now very often is online, whether in person, uh, and they might actually die. So that, that's just a really twisted mentality that, that somebody would want to get COVID or, or actually put themselves in a situation, for example, if, if there's a, a relative who, who, who tested positive, where they would expose themselves and get it just to obtain some cash. Uh, on that one, I wouldn't want to see a response necessarily from the insurance industry. I'd like to see the politicians or Health Minister Chen Shih-chung or even Premier Su or President Tsai uh, to come out and condemn that kind of behavior. Because, of course, Ross, insurance companies had voiced their concern about fraud in this case. Well, yeah, but that's a little bit different, right? I mean, fraud goes to the issues that we were, we were discussing earlier, such as uh, providing sufficient proof that you did test positive, proof that you did quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's the fraud concern. If you intentionally get it, uh, but you do really have it, uh, you know, you, you'll get the you could obtain the proof and, and then try and collect on the payout. And you probably would be able to collect on the payout. Uh, so I wouldn't call that uh, fraud, even if you intentionally exposed yourself uh, in order to test positive. Again, I, I think that that is very weird that that's not necessarily fraud. But, but, but there are there are obviously competing interests here where. You know, the insurance company does not want to be a victim of fraud. Uh, on the other hand, the, again, the competing interest here is efficient payout to people who have a valid policy. And, and the, the insurance companies, again, another competing interest is that they want to make sure they vet the claims. Uh, uh, and that's where the tension arises and why it blows up in the media. I, I would expect generally the insurance companies are, are just going to play along as as unhappy as they might be about having to pay out on these policies. They have no choice. And I would expect that in a few days or weeks, we're going to hear the regulators say how efficient under the tutelage of the regulator, the payouts from insurance <laughs> companies have now now become. 
And Brian, do you think this could deter insurance companies from running policies for other pandemics? It's possible. I mean, there's the anticipation that there could be other pandemics in the future. And so I think particularly because for most of us in our lifetime, or almost all of us, we have not experienced anything like this. And that includes the members of the insurance industry and those that make decisions for it. And so that could attack uh, decisions in the future. But I think what's concerning then is, for example, with long, long COVID and uh, these these uh, kind of more long-standing issues regarding COVID-19, then that might affect the ability to provide insurance for those individuals because then they'll be perceived in line with the uh, insurance payouts just for the people are getting now and so forth. I think what's particularly interesting is that because at least according to the CSECC, the majority of cases in Taiwan are asymptomatic or light, but then this could still result in a payout. And so I think that that's one of the questions that people are kind of wondering, well, maybe I got it and maybe I can prove to the insurance company that I got it. And so then I can get this payout. But I think then we will see people disputing it, uh, people not happy with their results because they maybe think they had it, but they didn't actually have it and that sort of thing. But I also do wonder then if that will lead to more specific insurance policy in the future where you need, for example, uh, influential or, or severe symptoms in order to actually get payouts rather than just light or asymptomatic. I'll make a prediction on this issue, which is that some of this uh, eventually unfolded into the national health insurance. So uh, you made a great a great point by, by bringing up long COVID. Uh, people are going to be going into the doctor you know, months from now uh, with, with medical conditions that they're going to uh, say is based on having had COVID. It's part of long COVID. Uh, the government is heading, we're, we're heading into the election season, right? So we have the local election, and then 14 months after that, we have the national election, January 2024. They're not going to stick the voters with, with payments. They're not, they're, they're, the government is definitely going to avoid raising national health insurance premiums in, in an election year in 2023. Uh, so I, I would expect more budgets for the national health insurance, and, and there'll be a big to do that some of this money is going to go to COVID or long COVID related care. Watch for it. Anyway, moving on now, and lawmakers this week passed a controversial amendment to Article 99-1 of the Accounting Act that will retrospectively acquit former President Chen Shui-bian of some of the corruption charges against him. The amendment was passed in a party-line vote boycotted by the KMT with 57 votes in favour and 32 objections. And it states that actions related to the filing, handling, reimbursement and use of all special allowance funds before December the 31st of 2006 are exempt from punishment. It also expanded the exemption granted under the article to include the use of discretionary funds given by all executive agencies, including the State Affairs Fund available to the President. Now, passage of the amendment means that Chen Shui-bian will be retrospectively absolved of both civil and criminal liability for the alleged misuse of the presidential office funds between 2000 and 2008. Chen was first indicted in the case in 2008, and it's currently in its second retrial at the Taiwan High Court. Now, the case is one of several corruption scandals that Chen became embroiled in after he left office. He was, of course, sentenced to 20 years in 2010 for accepting bribes in a land deal on several other cases, but he has been free on medical parole since 2015. Now, KMT lawmakers had attempted to prevent the vote on the amendment from taking place, but after some pushing, shoving and some verbal altercations, the DPP retook the podium in the main chamber in the legislative UN and voted in favour of the bill. Now, two lawmakers were injured in the melee there, and several others have since tested positive for the coronavirus, although whether that was related to the close quarters scuffling remains up for speculation. The KMT, though, did slam at passage of the amendment, with legislative caucus whip William Tsung arguing that the DPP should not have been focusing on absolving Chen Shui-bian while Taiwan is experiencing a surge in domestic coronavirus cases, while the Taiwan People's Party and the New Power Party both 
called it regrettable that the DPP used its majority to push the amendment through without a thorough discussion on the matter in the legislative chamber. However, former President Chen Shui-bian hailed the amendment, saying that he's waited 16 years for the personal use of the fund to be decriminalised. However, he then went on and tested positive for the coronavirus that same day. So, Brian, we've got a big controversial amendment there to Article 99-1. That's right. And so it's been a while since we had a big fight in the legislature along these lines. And so it divides along familiar lines. Uh, I think what's interesting is particularly the DPP decided to move it on this juncture, I think taking advantage of the KMT's weakness. Uh, this is not something they necessarily needed to do, but they felt a need to do so. And I think part of it is in preparation for elections to make an outreach to the, the deep greens, many of which who are still politically loyal to Chen, uh, for whom his, the crimes against him or the, the criminal charges against him are still a sticking point. And so, for example, there have been calls from deep greens for President Tsai to pardon Chen. And that didn't happen, but in, and neither does this clear Chen of all charges, only those specifically regarding the use of the uh, special funds. However, I think this is a way, for example, to consolidate the DPP's political forces ahead of elections. And so I think that's part of why this occurred at this juncture. I think it's also kind of interesting that KMT's framing was along the lines of COVID, that the DPP is more focused on pardoning Chen or getting him off charges than focusing on fighting COVID and taking measures to prevent the deaths of children. And so this is interesting, too, because I think particularly the KMT could have just framed it along the lines of, well, the DPP trying to cover up for their own and et cetera. And so using this kind of COVID frame was interesting because I think perhaps that's what the DPP is trying to take advantage of, that the public is focused more on COVID than, for example, moves such as this. The, uh, the pardon issue came up in President Tsai's first term. She obviously wasn't bold enough to do it then. Uh, she still might do it in, in the second term. And uh, it, if she was going to pardon him, that there was no need to to uh, make this change uh, to you know, wipe away you know, some of the criminal charges or potential criminal charges, because this case is still meandering through Taiwan's criminal justice system. As you do, uh, complex white collar crime cases in Taiwan do go on for eight, ten, twelve years or longer. So that that aspect is not unusual. And one important thing to keep in mind with regards specifically to this narrow set of charges was it's not really that he put the money in his pocket you know that that's really what the nature of the bribes that you know would relate to land deals and other business transactions involving corporations here in taiwan that, that gavin you alluded to uh the, the, this is more about uh, uh sloppy spending habits for lack of a better description and, and president chen's uh, defense was was basically always that uh this money, by its very nature, is supposed to be discretionary spending of the president to basically do whatever the president wants to, as long as the president says it's in in the interest of the state. That's why it's called the state affairs. But uh, I could buy coffee mugs for visitors to the presidential office, or I could spend it trying to buy off foreign politicians. Uh, and uh, there's not supposed to be a, much accounting or too many questions asked. Uh, it's uh, some would call it a slush fund. Uh, he's crying foul because he's basically being prosecuted for for how he spent a slush fund. Uh, so uh, I'm not sympathetic to President Chen at all. Um, I think what the, the DPP did was completely inappropriate, especially to make it retroactive like this. Uh, but but they have the majority in the legislature. They still have uh, the majority of public support, or if not a majority, certainly a plurality. So they can do things like this. Uh, I, I should also just quickly condemn the behavior of the Guomindang legislators. This is not the way to the hearts of the of the voters uh, by, by, again, rushing the podium and engaging in fisticuffs. This is not 
mature behavior. It's not the behavior of the, the, the quote unquote loyal opposition. And uh, to do it right before Jew goes to America, it just plants the image in Americans' minds, at least to those who are paying attention that Jew might meet uh, when he's in Washington, D.C., is that the Kuomintang is still not ready to govern. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I think it's interesting, particularly that this is can be seen as somewhat convergent behavior between the KMT and the DPP, because Article 99.1 of the Accounting Act was already passed under the KMT. And so this cleared, for example, other officials, except for the present, of charges or of misuse of, of special funds. And so it was thought at the time that this was intended to clear charges that are facing Maingtio from his time as Taipei mayor, also KMT legislators such as Yan Piao. But then the DPP also wanted to supply the president, but the KMT did not want this because that would have cleared Chen of charges. And so this is actually interesting insofar as this goes back to a longer issue from when these this article was originally introduced. Uh, Ke Jieming, as the DPP majority speaker, uh, said, for example, that the DPP would have acted on this in the past, but did not have the majority in the legislature to do so, but it does now. And so it is interesting that it's doing this now, though, uh, because the DPP has held the majority since 2016. And so doing this in size second term, I think that is perhaps a sign of just not wanting to push on this issue uh, more prominently. But now is the timing in which the DPP thinks it's right to move on this. And Brian, I mean, what do you think the general public thinks about this? Do you think the general public are paying attention to this case or it's just like, oh my God, something else? Yeah, I think actually the uh, public response has not been too large. I think that for the Pan Blue camp, in particular, there'll be outrage. The KMT would not take such a stance on this unless they, uh, you know, in I mean, in terms of being willing to fight it out in the legislature and that kind of thing, unless they could thought they could politically gain for it. However, uh, I don't actually see strong responses from the public. I think the public is still more focused on the coronavirus uh, outbreak, just other events in, in politics, uh, the visit by Senator Tammy Duckworth, etc. I mean, this is kind of appearing in the news more often than, than this uh, fight, actually, in the legislature. And the Transitional Justice Commission formally disbanded this past Monday after four years. The government agency was formed on May the 31st of 2018 to investigate injustices during the martial law era. Now, according to the commission, it reviewed more than 7,000 political cases and overturned nearly 6,000 wrongful convictions since its formation and has worked to remove symbols of authoritarianism and preserve historical sites of injustices. Now, the work of the agency will now be passed to other government bodies, including the Ministry of Culture and the Ministry of Education. Now, one of the commission's final recommendations, which is quite interesting, was that images of former President Chiang Kai-shek should be removed from the island's currency. So, four years of the Transitional Justice Commission, Ross. Disappointing. Uh, you know, some of these ideas you know, get, get discussed for way too long. Uh, they've been discussed even before the commission was, was constituted. Uh, the, the most notable one would, would be what to do with the, the CKS memorial, uh, but you know, something like the currency, uh, you know, space has been on there for a long time. Well, why are they throwing out, tossing out this idea at, at the end? I mean, they could have easily come up with this on day one and really pursued it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, because transitional justice and transparency in the historical wrongs that occurred during the authoritarian era here in Taiwan is important and it should be done and it should be done professionally. Unfortunately, the, the commission uh, has had its its bad moments when when it was accused of uh, doing its work more in the interest of helping the uh, DPP than in, 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 again, kind of righting the historical wrongs uh, or correcting the historical wrongs. Uh, 
Uh, and it's going out, not with a bang. I think it's going out w- with a bit of a whimper. Uh, the work will be carried on by other government agencies. Uh, I, I think it could have done more. It could have done better. Uh, so I, I think that this kind of ending uh, is unfortunate. And I don't think the public is really going to remember the commission's work. Uh, you know, months, years from now, I don't think the public in Taiwan is going to say, they really made a difference in, in uh, helping us understand Taiwan's history. And that's very, very unfortunate. And I would not be surprised if a, a future uh, DPP president uh, and a legislative majority constitutes some other commission to go along with the other ones that I just mentioned, such as the new, relatively new Human Rights Commission or what the Ministry of Culture might do in this regard, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I think that uh, a future DPP president could perhaps take, continue this in another uh, another auspices or another kind of framework to do that. And so I think that's the question, uh, particularly now with the dissolution of the Transitional Commission. I think part of it is that uh, the Transitional Commission faced accusations of being a, a tool of the DPP from the KMT. And so to avoid that perception, dissolving it before the end of her second term is, is one way kind of out of it. Um, Tsai herself, for example, provoked controversy when she spoke at an event dedicated to uh, Cheng Quo, And so that raised issues. But the Transitional Commission had a fraught position from the beginning uh, in terms of that, for example, it did not always get along with civil society groups that have been working on the issue of transitional justice from some time. And then there's opposition from the KMT regarding uh, arguing over history or the unwillingness of the KMT turnover records and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's interesting then because if there had been more done regarding transitional justice early on by the commission, I think the KMT would have kind of leaned much more heavily into accusing the uh, Thai administration of overstepping its bounds through the Transitional Justice Commission. Uh, but I think particularly what will be a litmus test of its legacy is specifically the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, because that's one of the uh, major recommendations that the Transitional Justice Commission is making as it is kind of on the path out. Uh, so while there's been discussion, for example, of currency as well, that some currency still has Chiang Kai-shek on it and that sort of thing, I think there's much been more focus on the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. And so whether then it can get that done, I think will be seen as a, a, a kind of verdict on its legacy, whether it actually did get things done, whether there is actually the removal of a statue or not. And so there have been calls. I mean, this itself, just this, the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial itself, that's been a consorted process with, uh, for example, exhibitions arranged to show different possible designs for the future, calls for the memorial to become the legislature in the future. And so those questions are still unsettled as well. But I think that that will become the kind of major uh, incident or, or, or kind of uh, event seen as, as determining the, whether it actually managed to get things done or not. Of course, Brian, it's now been handed over to other government agencies. So, of course, technically, if the KMT, when it regains power, if it regains power, could simply cease to do anything. Oh, that's right. And so it's kind of interesting to see the uh, various aspects of it portioned out to different agencies as well. For example, the uh, commission also tried to educate young people uh, through various untraditional means. For example, organizing escape room games, because like, that's popular among young people, uh, making example, cards or postcards that would distribute and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think that it's interesting how transitional justice then gets folded into different other government agencies. But if a KMT administration were to come to power, you might have attempts to reverse that. And so there's the possibility then that one will see different versions of Taiwanese history being taught, depending who is in power. Well, again, as I said, uh, it's going out with a whimper. No one's going to remember it, especially if, if uh, as we've been discussing, the different uh, aspects of its work going forward are parceled out among different government agencies. And I think also uh, you know, the, the people who tend to pay attention are, for lack of a better phrase, self-identify. What I, what I mean is 
the people who might go to some of the exhibitions or uh, other uh, museum or, or public events that the commission has organized in recent years uh, are, are the people who are genuinely interested in, in the history. And we have to be frank that, that it's just not everyone, uh, especially the last couple of years with, with, with the pandemic situation. So it, it tends to attract a, a self-identifying group of people who pay attention, who feel strongly about these issues, uh, commentators like us, uh, media people, uh, for example, historians. Uh, but but it, it's ultimately a, a very small minority of the population. And when you, you do it in schools and you do it with kids, it often just becomes, uh, you know, it's, it's another subject you have to go to. It's another lecture you have to go to, uh, whether that's at primary school or secondary school level. It doesn't necessarily inspire uh, a lifelong interest in these issues with younger generations. And then as time goes by, you get into subsequent generations, people have even less knowledge, less interest. And again, I'll just use that word. Unfortunately, I don't think the Transitional Justice Commission made a lot of headway in, in overcoming some of those challenges. Uh, you know, if you ask younger people, you know, unless they're they're really into politics and history, uh, I don't think they learn much uh, in the last four years based on the activities of the Transitional Justice Commission. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and KMT Chairman Eric Jew has left for the United States on his much-delayed and talked-about trip there. Jew is being accompanied by KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah, KMT Department of International Affairs Head Alexander Huang, and KMT lawmaker Chen Yi Shin. He'll be making stops in Washington, New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Now speaking, following a party central standing committee meeting on Wednesday, Jew told reporters that his main goals are to safeguard the Republic of China and ensure, ensure rather security across the Taiwan Strait. Jew said the KMT must tell the world that it will absolutely adhere to its founding principles, love Taiwan the most, and fully safeguard the ROC and stand together with all democratic nations. And he went on to say that he will also tell US politicians, academics, and Taiwanese expats in America that the KMT is back. And his trip is not merely for the KMT, but is also for the sake of the ROC and cross-strait security. Along with meeting with US officials and representatives from a wide range of sectors while in America, Jew will also be attending a plaque unveiling ceremony to the newly reopened KMT liaison office in the U.S. Capitol. So, Ross, he's finally gone. <laughs> uh, where's the laughter track? Yeah. <laughs> this this is uh, this trip was supposed to happen uh, you know, within months of when he became chairman last last uh, October. Uh yeah, then, then there was uh, New Year, that there was coronavirus concerns, uh, Lunar New Year, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're talking about a party that's in third place in in, in popularity among the public. A recent poll show that Mariko Wenzhou's Taiwan People's Party is currently a few points ahead. The Kuomintang is, is in the low teens and the, the TPP, the Taiwan People's Party, is in the high teens. Uh, I, I just don't think 
American government or politicians are particularly interested at the moment in what the the third place opposition party in a foreign country has to say. Uh, So no matter how the Gobi dog tries to spin this as something important, uh, they're they're not going to gain anything from the U.S. government. No U.S. government official is going to endorse the Kuomintang, um, not this far ahead of, of the January 2024 national election. Uh, so good luck, have fun, uh, but uh, you're not going to gain much from the U.S. government, nor are you going to gain much from the Taiwan voter as well. There are the Taiwan voters also concerned with uh, COVID-19, obviously. Then we have the local election. I just don't think the public here in Taiwan is, is going to fall in love with the Kuomintang or Julie Lun because he goes to Washington, New York, San Francisco, and L.A. in June of 2022. Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, what is also interesting is that Ju might actually see some backlash from the game team for traveling to the U.S. Uh, for example, Ju has historically faced accusations of being pro U.S. Uh, too pro-U.S. within the KMT. And this is often coming from the deep blues. And so one even has these crazy conspiracy accusations that circulate among the, the deep blues that he's a CIA agent or things like that in the past. And so that's absurd. However, I think that this trip will add to those perceptions. And uh, actually, I think that Drew might actually be a little wanting to downplay this among the deep blues because the deep blues do seem rising in the party and, and much more vocal than in the past. And so this will not be another issue going forward. I mean, Drew would be asked about, for example, issues around Taiwan's defense, particularly after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the issues of, of the question of trade with the U.S., particularly with the announcement of a new trade initiative between Taiwan and the U.S. today uh, and so forth. But the KMT is not in power right now. It does not have the ability to kind of determine policy on this. And so it is possible well, that then this will not be that significant in that sense. But I think that it points to this larger pattern in which the KMT has such a contorted relation to the U.S. now in terms of that the trip was delayed so many times that part of me wondered if Drew would get COVID or something and be called off yet again. Uh, the idea of opening an office in D.C. was also something I was fought over. Uh, it was announced and be like, well, it's not happening. Then it's like, oh, it's happening. And suddenly there's an office, uh, but that's still controversial. And so it looks like the KMT is really undecided in terms of how it wants to position itself relative to the U.S. right now. And that is visible, I think, in how long this trip drags on or how the how contested the idea of an office in the U.S. became and so forth. And so this trip might actually also just be part of that. So I'm, I'm going to disagree with something Brian said, because uh, uh, not that I think Brian is wrong, but what I think is interesting and where I disagree is positioning itself with regard to the U.S., it just seems some kind of dream of the Kuomintang because they need to capture the votes of voters in Taiwan. And I don't think you do that by saying we had a nice trip to the U.S. or the U.S. didn't criticize us because, like I said earlier, the U.S. is not going to say something nice about you. They're going to help you get elected. So how, how is this relevant to the Taiwan voter? You go to Washington and say, I had some meetings and uh, uh, everyone smiled. I saw a bunch of old friends. So what? What does this mean to the voter in Taiwan? You have to give the voter in Taiwan your China policy, your various other foreign policies, your defense policies, Brian mentioned, your domestic policies across a full range of issues, whether that's uh, health care, elder care, 
housing policy, et cetera. Uh, this, this trip just has nothing to do with that. Uh, again, I don't think the, the voter in Taiwan cares what the Kuomintang's relationship uh, with the United States is. Not that there is one or will be one. Again, I think that's just a dream of the Kuomintang. Uh, so uh, this might seem important for uh, Mr. Zhu and his team, but, but ultimately, uh, again, I, I think it's just irrelevant to the voters here. And Brian, what about his meeting with Taiwanese expats? What do you think Taiwanese expats are going to say to him? Yeah, it depends. I mean, it's uh, always interesting because whether you are of the pan blue or pan green camp, you always go to America before elections, meet with the uh, overseas community there. And that's often because of funding, uh, because they provide funding for presidential runs and, and that sort of thing. Also, just make sure they're on the same page and so forth. But sometimes the perception uh, of either political camp, actually, and their overseas diaspora is, is actually somewhat out of step with the present politics. Oftentimes it is caught in the past. And so I think that that is also quite interesting. But you know, they are stakeholders within the conversation of uh, the party in that sense. And so I think that particularly Chu and the question of his future political ambitions, because there's speculation within the KMT from potential rivals that he does want to be the presidential candidate of the KMT in the future, despite denying this. And so I think particularly his meetings with uh, overseas community members will be seen in line with this. And so that will raise speculation as to whether that is his plan, because when you do do that, when you do run for president, you do try to solicit funds from overseas. Moving on now, and former legislative speaker and secretary general to the president, Su Jia-chun, has taken over the post of chairman of the Taiwan-Japan Relations Association. Su's appointment came after the association's directors and supervisors approved the resignation of former chairman Cho Yi-ren. Now speaking after taking over the post, Su said that he's been dedicated to promoting exchanges between Taiwanese and Japanese lawmakers during his tenure in the legislature, and he also led a legislative delegation to visit Japan. And he went on to say that he will make every effort to bring the relationship between Taiwan and Japan to a new level. So, Ross, Mr. Su takes over at the office that controls and looks after Japanese Taiwan affairs. But of course, it comes at a time, Ross, when Taiwan is actually hoping to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, I'm going to just, sorry, I need to cough. <laughs> <laughs> really sorry about that. Uh, where, where should he I doesn't, start from? Ross does not have COVID. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Brian to help file my insurance claim. Oh, uh, yeah. I actually, actually have COVID. Fantastic so. about that. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I disagree with you a bit, Gavin, because uh, this position is more honorary. It doesn't really control the, the policies that the Taiwan government sets. Right? The, the policies are really set by Foreign Minister Wu uh, with the input of Xie uh, Changping, Frank Xie, the representative de facto ambassador in Japan. We just have to remember that this somewhat weird governance structure is, you know, goes back to uh, when relations were, were broken and representative offices were established. So both for the United States and for Japan, there's this intermediary non-government organization uh, that, that exists on paper. It does exist practically in the sense that some uh, documentation does carry its name. It flows through the, the, these NGOs. Uh, but this is more about giving Mr. Su some uh, position with a nice title and a nice salary. Uh, but I, I don't think he's really going to be the key man for uh, Taiwan-Japan relations. He, he's not going to be the key man who persuades Japan to be more enthusiastic uh, about uh, Taiwan's CPTPP application or any other aspect of the, of the bilateral relationship. So we should look at this as more uh, 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 a reward 
uh, thank you for your service to the party and the government over many, many years. And oh, by the way, we'll give you another job that has a nice title. You get to entertain visiting dignitaries uh, subject to COVID restrictions. And uh, thank you very much and have a great time. That's right. And so it's a way to keep Sue in the spotlight or in some ways to reshuffle personnel and uh, make sure that he's in a position. And so I don't think it's necessarily that significant. Uh, it does take place at a time in which Taiwan Japan ties are under uh, increased spotlight, uh, for example, regarding the CPTPP, but also, for example, efforts by the Biden administration to uh, kind of unite countries in the Asia Pacific to counter the threat of China, which Japan obviously plays a key role in vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, polling shows that, for example, there are quite a lot of Japanese who are concerned about the possibility of a Taiwan invasion and should believe that the Japanese government should plan for that and so forth. And so particularly where the DPP is concerned, I think Sue Taken position really played as showing the significance for the DPP at present of Taiwan-Japan ties. But I think overall, in the larger picture of things, it is just a way to give him a new position and put him there and resuffle personnel. And before we go this week, Tom Cruise swooped into movie theaters here in Taiwan in his latest flick, Top Gun Maverick. And he's wearing the famous bomber jacket from the original 1986 movie with the ROC flag emblazoned on the back, which sent cheers up here as a 2019 trailer for the movie saw the mysterious removal of the, both the ROC and Japanese flags from said jacket which sparked some fan fury. Now, there was speculation the decision to remove the flags was influenced by Chinese film distributor and production company Tencent Pictures, who were part producing the movie and also as Hollywood sought to cout out of Beijing's political demands. Tencent, though, ended up pulling out the movie. And during the first screenings here in Taiwan, audiences cheered and clapped when the ROC flag unexpectedly popped up on the back of Tom Cruise, Ross. So have you seen the movie and did you cheer? I wouldn't cheer. I think that's a completely immature, silly reaction. Uh, I, I wrote a public commentary for a media outlet here in Taiwan in 2019 when this issue came up. Part of the frustration that I had or prompted me to write a commentary was the number of, of media commentators who called this the Taiwanese flag. Right? As you said, Gavin, this is the Republic of China flag. It's still officially the flag of this country. But we know that most people uh, here, if, if uh, uh, China wouldn't invade, they would prefer to junk the ROC name and they would prefer to junk the flag. And there's a, a number of proposed flags for a future Taiwan Republic. So people should not call this the Taiwan flag or the Taiwanese flag. In fact, I, I find that uh, uh, insulting uh, to the people who are uh, supporters of changing the country's name and flag. I think they, they deserve uh, respect. They deserve to be listened to. Uh, Taiwan's a democracy and they're entitled to have that position. And some people over the decades we went to jail for that. We were talking about the Transitional Justice Commission earlier. So please, people, don't call it the Taiwanese flag. Uh, it is the ROC flag. And this is why I think the reaction is somewhat strange. As I said, I think most people in Taiwan, if given the choice, we know this from polling data, uh, they would prefer to change the name and change the flag. So to be cheering for that flag, uh, which is a flag even the, the current government of Taiwan wants to have minimal interaction with, right? they don't like to display it, they don't like to have it featured prominently on, on government uh, websites and documents. They try to downplay it. It's understandable. It's a DPP government. Uh, so for people to uh, uh, cheer it when they're not even really into it, I, I find that very silly. Yeah, it is an interesting controversy because I think, for example, uh, between the first Top Gun, uh, it's a film very much shaped by the Cold War, and the second Top Gun, which is now we're in this whatever era we're in now with U.S.-China trade tension and so forth, it points to the differences that, for example, 
the ROC flag and Japanese flag would be removed for marketing purposes because the US and China, despite being at loggerheads during the Cold War, are now very economically intertwined, even as we have tensions now. And so because of these tensions, then you have the uh, flag being put it back on the jacket. And I think that's interesting too, because the movie itself, there's no clear enemy. It's just a kind of fantastical enemy. It's not a real country. Uh, but I think where Taiwan is concerned, uh, yeah, it touches on these issues regarding ROC versus Taiwan flag. I think also it's just unusual for uh, Taiwan to see itself come up in a major Hollywood film in any form. And so I think that that's the part of its reaction. Uh, it's interesting history there, though, because it is a real jacket. And uh, even in the KMT party headquarters, actually, I saw a very similar jacket. It didn't have the Japanese flag on it. Um, I saw this during the October chair elections and it had it on display there. And so there's kind of interesting history there. Uh, but it's uh, I think it's it's one of those incongruities. I was thinking also it'd be very funny though, if for example in the new Top Gun, so like there's like a DPP flag on his jacket, or so like there's a Chinese Taipei flag, or something incongruous like that. Uh, but yeah. Well, uh, that kind of just shows how ridiculous this whole thing is because the the original uh, jacket design was not true to the to the fly, flying tigers. You know, it's kind of you know it's based on it, and, that, and that's what that's what Brian saw at the Guomin Dang headquarters last year. They had a display of some uh, flying tigers. Uh, historical paraphernalia, uh, but uh, the, the flying tigers weren't wearing the Japanese flag on their jacket. Uh, so, uh, you know, the whole design originally in Top Gun in 1986 was just a mishmash of, of logos and flags anyway. And now, so, so decades later, we're, we're, we're debating this. Uh, this is another thing where uh, uh, people will get excited for a couple of weeks or months, then uh, everyone will forget this uh, pretty soon. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Bloomer-Hugh. Okay. And by Ross Vegan Man Feingold. Have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.